you have your Bibles this morning, I invite you to turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9. If you have your Bibles or your devices, please turn with me to Matthew, chapter 9. This morning, we will find our study of God's Word in verses 32 down through verse 34. Verses 32 through 34. The title of the message this morning is, How Do You Respond to Jesus? How do you respond to Jesus? Or we could also say in a different way, how do you respond to God's Word? How do you respond to God's Word? Today in our text as we're studying through the Gospel of Matthew, text after text, week after week, Matthew is showing us the glory and authority of Christ. Today we find our text in verse 32, Matthew chapter 9. And Matthew, again, it's like we're picking up midstream, right in the middle of a busy miracle narrative, and so it feels just as it should. And Matthew says, As they went out, behold, they brought to him a man, mute, and demon-possessed. And when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke. And the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never seen like this in all of Israel. But the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the ruler of demons. This is the living word of God. As we look into our text this morning, we find that Matthew is giving us a third miracle account of three sets of miracles here in Matthew chapter 9. As we have put attention to in the past, Matthew likes to thematically group his miracles together. And so in the last couple of weeks, as we've been in this section of a section of three miracles, the third of three, we've come to the third and last one in this section. And we, what we see as we look into this account is very interesting. And the last couple of weeks, it's been very interesting. As we consider how Matthew likes to batch these miracles, it's not just simply abstract. The last couple of weeks, we've looked back into the girl who was healed in verse 18 and the woman who had an issue of blood. Verses 27 through 31, we saw the two men who were blind, and they came to Jesus, and they were healed. One thing we see as we pave and set up the way for our text this morning is that in each one of these accounts, there's a series of twos. Just by way of reminder, verses 18 through 26, two daughters with two different problems, death and disease. Verse 27 through 31, two men with one problem, both of them were blind. And then in our text today, verses 32 through 34, we find one man with two problems. Also in this account, as it's very succinct, it's very short, we find that there are three people who speak. There is Jesus, there is the man who is mute or dumb is the old-fashioned word. He cannot speak. He's not dumb in cognitive action or intellect. He, is, he cannot utter words. He is a mute man. And then the third voice that we see in our text is the Pharisees and their response. And interestingly enough, the most horrific response is from the religious crowd. It's not from Jesus, of course, and it's not from the man who is demon-possessed, but it's from those who should know better. Number one, as I want us to note as we walk through the text this morning in verse 32, we see the occasion for the miracle as it is set up for us. Notice the phrase, as they went out, behold, they brought to him a man. Again, as I mentioned just a moment ago, we're coming midstream into a series of accounts. These accounts are so important that it, it's, I don't feel comfortable enough as a pastor just to batch them all together and not walk through them individually on their own merits. 
But this account is connected to what comes before it. And if you remember, those two men who were blind, verse 30, their eyes were opened, and Jesus warned them, of course, saying, See that no one knows it. Then verse 31, they went out and they departed, and they began to spread the news about Christ in all that country. Now, as they went out, these two blind men go out, and they have their newfound sight. They believe in who Jesus is. They have called him and confessed him to be the son of David. And as they go out, these two men who were just healed, they go and find an acquaintance, a friend of theirs, who the text tells us here, they brought to Jesus a man who was mute and demon-possessed. Now we've seen in a text like this before, back in Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, and it's interesting, where a man and his friends, a man is brought to Jesus by his friends. In that text, it is the paralyzed man who, whose friends brought him to Jesus. Why was this man and why was that man brought to the presence of Christ? He was physically unable. Both of these men were physically unable themselves to come. This man in our text here this morning, while the previous man was physically unable, this man is also spiritually unable. That leads us to point number two in our text this morning. Not only the circumstances, but we also see the cause for this miracle. This man, the text tells us, the Holy Spirit inspires, says this. This was a man who was mute and demon-possessed. Now, many people, when they would see him, and some would say, what's his problem? They would say, oh, he can't talk. As we'll see in just a moment, he also more than likely could not hear. This man had a twofold problem in the realm of the physical aspect of it. But what was unseen, maybe some knew, maybe some didn't, was not the fact that he could not talk, but this was a man, the text tells us, a man who was mute because he was demon-possessed. I want us to observe, first of all, the fact that this is a man. This is a man made in the image of God. This is the same for any person who is male or female. We are all created in the image of God. And why this is important and why this stands in our text this morning of significance is the fact that Satan had a stronghold in this man's life. He is marring this man as he is made in the image of God. Friends, it's just a reminder that we are created to know God. You are created to know God. And not just to know him, but to enjoy him, to delight in him. You are created to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, as the Catechism tells us. And we all understand that sin nature that we inherit by Adam... But what we see in this man's condition is that his problem is more than physical, but it is caused by a spiritual reality. He is a host to a demon person or personality, you could say, and this deprives him of his ability to speak. And so there's a sense of sadness in the text. This man is afflicted, much like we saw the maniac of Gadara in a previous account, going back to earlier in Matthew's gospel. This man is made in the image of God, and like that man who was controlled by a host of demons, he is marred, he cuts himself, he is unrecognizable, he is powerful, going back to the maniac of Gadara. This man as well is mute. This is the direct result of the demon inhabiting him. Now this word in the Greek, kophos, means this, a man who is incapable of possibly speaking and or hearing. That was the understanding of this word as it was used in the common vernacular. But what the text tells us here is that he was mute. He could not communicate. And oftentimes those two things, 
go together. Now, we were created to give glory to God, to pray to him, to thank him, and to say yes, Lord, when he calls us. But here we see Satan has a stronghold preventing this man from interacting. We can only imagine as the two friends who were blind men go quickly, their, their eyes and their, their imagination says, Jesus has helped us. Jesus has healed us. What about, we have this man, he's unknown as far as his name goes, but what about our friend who is unable to communicate? If Jesus can heal us of our blindness, surely he can heal our friend of his muteness. This morning, I want us to consider this man's problem was demon possession. But most people on the surface level would not know that. While this man's problem was demon possession, which manifested itself in an ability to communicate, what is your problem this morning? Some of you have problems that are seen. Many of you have problems that are unseen. I'm not saying they're all directly correlated to demon possession. That's not what I'm saying at all. But the reality is we have problems. All of us have problems in the physical realm and in the spiritual realm. Now, you can hear the word of God. You can respond with God as the Spirit speaks to you through the Word. And this points out the essential aspect of why God created us to have fellowship with Him. Our mouths are designed to interact and to worship Him, to praise Him, and give thanks to Him, to say yes to Him as a result of the message this morning. Again, Matthew gives emphasis here that this man had difficulty speaking. Why was that? Because a demon personality possessed him. Now, when you study through a text like this or any text regarding uh, demonic spirits or demon possession, as we mentioned the last time, there's all types of things to learn. There's all types of things to conclude. And there's all types of misunderstandings that come as a result of encountering someone who is possessed by a demonic spirit. And one thing I just want to do very quickly is review and try to very quickly correct some many often misunderstood beliefs that people have and think that the scriptures convey when they do not. The first one very quickly is this. The New Testament writers, as we look through the Gospels, do not, listen here, do not attribute all physical illnesses or abnormalities to the presence or operations of evil spirits. In one sense, we understand that this world is broken, as Genesis 3 tells us, that this world is not flourishing as God originally designed because of the presence of sin. So we understand that. In one sense, we also understand that Satan certainly has a demonic stronghold in the world today. But God is all sovereign. This is not something that is, is something that overpowers God in any way. But many people are not careful and they deduce that all physical problems are a direct result, very intentionally, of a work of Satan. And when you study the Gospels, as we go week by week, verse by verse, we do not find that. In fact, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 24, the text distinguishes in giving a list of the ailments of the people who were brought to Jesus. The Holy Spirit distinguishes between demoniacs and ep epileptics. Some were afflicted by demon-possessed, uh, were demon-possessed, and some were simply afflicted in simply the physical realm. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 22, looking up ahead, the text again distinguishes that some are lame, some are maimed and have an inability to see and speak or hear, and it has nothing to do with demon possession. So we need to be careful about the broad blanket uh, brush stroke, if you will, of attributing everything as a work of Satan. The Gospels take great means, and the Holy Spirit inspires for us to make distinctions here. 
Another thought we could give very quickly, number two, is this. It is not true that demon possession is simply another name for insanity. It is not true that demon possession is simply another name for insanity. Thirdly, another point we can bring out from our study of the Scriptures is that while there is a resemblance, it is not true that demon possession is simply another name for multiple personality disorder. Demons are spiritual beings who are distinct from man and able to depart from a man and enter into swine, as we saw in Matthew in the, in the, in the previous healing that Jesus performed. They are always evil, and they are driven out by the word and power of Christ instantly, and none of this applies to multiple personality disorder. We hear a lot about these things today, don't we? A fourth thing that we can conclude as well is the term demon possession describes a condition in which a distinct and evil personality foreign to the person possessed has taken control of an individual. In fact, in our text here, this evil personality or demon is able to speak through the mouth of the possessed individual when he desires to. And we've seen this previously as well and throughout the New Testament. For example, in Acts chapter 9, verse 13, when they encounter a, a man possessed by demons, is one of the most famous lines by demons when they say this. They say, Jesus we know, Paul we know, but who are you? In other words, you profess to be a disciple of Christ, and they expose the individuals as not having the power of Christ to order them around, if you will. Going back to Jesus' previous miracle of the maniac of Gadara, when they see Jesus, if you remember, what, is, what do they say to him? Jesus, thou son of God, what have you to do with us before the time? Referring to the judgment seat. Last point we can draw out of this is just by way of reminder is as we study these texts, it's a reminder that demons are the agents of Satan. And as we study through Matthew's gospel, text after text, miracle after miracle, Matthew is teaching us, he's showing us why we can trust in Jesus, why we can believe he is who he says he is. How can we believe in him? To the first century audience and even to us today here in the 21st century, we can trust in Jesus in that when Jesus comes upon the scene, he speaks by the word of his power and shows his sovereignty over even the demons of hell. In Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, we see by the means of his victory over him in the desert, ultimately, as we saw in Matthew chapter 4, ultimately he will deal with all demons and Satan forever, fully, finally, and forever. One other reference I just want to touch on briefly is this gospel text, if you will, reminding us of what Jesus did upon the cross. And it's Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. You've got to understand, when Jesus comes on the scene, he deals with Satan and he deals with Satan's minions in a way that has not been seen before. And so it requires a response. When you see this to the crowd there that day and through us by extension and hearing it in words of faith, you must respond. Jesus demands a response. You, you can't just look at Jesus and say, oh, that's so cool. But yet some do. And that is a response. You can't look at Jesus' miracles and say, wow, I, I really don't believe that. You would be insane to respond to the miracles of Jesus and say, that didn't just, just happen. Because it did. And so a response is required. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, Paul writes and he says this, And you, reminding the church of what Christ achieved for them, did in them through the work of the gospel. Paul says this, And you... Being dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, 
He has made you alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Now notice here verse 15, having disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them or over them in it. When did he do this? He did it on the cross. But before the cross ever happened, Jesus is going through disarming the powers that be, if you will. Friends, we rejoice in the power of Christ. We rejoice not in just the power of Christ to cast out demons. We rejoice in the power of Christ to forgive us of our sins. We rejoice in the power of Christ, as we just sang about a moment ago, that he breaks the chains of sin. We are released from that. Our identity is no longer what we once used to do, but because of faith in Christ, our identity is in Christ and him alone. It is by grace you are saved through faith. What a blessing this is. What a, how this stirs our hearts to praise. I want to note something else here as well. Something that we hear a lot of today, and this oftentimes when you just kind of call out something that I feel like is incorrect, it will stir people up to anger, well then it'll have to be that way. But we hear a lot about binding the devil. We hear a lot about binding the devil, and that sounds good. And so you look into the New Testament, and nowhere, to my knowledge, do we find in the New Testament that we are to bind the devil. What we are told is that we are to resist him. We're told that multiple times, James chapter 4, verse 7, Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. 1 Peter 5, 8, verses 5, 8, and 9, Resist him, the devil, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about, roaring like a lion, seeking whom he may devour. Here we see such a text of someone he has completely taken over. Resist him, steadfast in the faith. Friends, listen. Binding is the work of Christ. The binding of Satan is the work of Christ and Christ alone. Our job is to resist. Our job is to resist. And I want to say this in closing as we just kind of, kind of touch on this theme, if you will, of this demon-possessed man and how important it is, is that Satan often, both in the unsaved, but also in the saved, looks for a route or a way in to bring about oppression. I'm not talking about possession. I'm talking about whether it's through bitterness or anger, or unconfessed sin, Satan loves to look for our weakest link and to bring about a stronghold of oppression in those ways. It's why we must take on the spiritual armor of God, run to Christ, confess our sins in Christ, and live by faith, relying upon His grace, and resist the devil. Take on the shield of faith. Take up the sword of the Spirit. I point you right back to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, who arrives on the scene. His public ministry is commencing, and we see Him engaged in great warfare with Satan himself. And what does He do? He doesn't do what He does here. Here, He simply commands Him to go away, and the, the demon and he follows. But what Jesus does, if you remember Matthew chapter 4, he models for you and for me what we are to do when we feel the oppression of Satan or the temptations of Satan or the subtle subtlety, the power of Satan in our realm is simply this, quote scripture, know the scriptures, take up the sword of the spirit. In the same way that many of you are fascinated and have a hobby with your concealed carries and you know how to unload and load and put together again and you know every type of weapon available and you have an arsenal, you need to know your Bible in the same way. The Bible is our weapon. The Bible is our weapon of faith. The scriptures are our sword of the Spirit. 
And Jesus models for us text after text. Satan misuses Scripture. Jesus uses Scripture to dispel him and finally tells him to go on. And he does in defeat. Now, friends, we're not Christ. We run to Christ. We believe in Christ. We rest in Christ. But we can follow Christ's example that he modeled for us to know his word, hide it deep in our hearts so that we do not sin against him. Now, coming back to our text, we see the cause for this miracle. And this cause was ultimately demonic possession. As we noted, this is not always the way that demons work, but we see that it is a way uh, that they do. And interestingly enough, the work of this demon is simply to mute, to shut up this man in the same way the mute button on your remote silences the, the audio content on the screen. That's the work of this demon. And this is opposite of how Satan typically works. You don't have to turn there, but 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1 tells us, Paul tells Timothy, Now the Spirit, speaking of the Holy Spirit, expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and teachings of doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy. Here what Paul warns Timothy of is this, that part of the work of fallen spirits of unredeemed spirits or the work of Satan is simply this, of speaking lies, spreading falsehoods, false doctrine, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. So more often the way that Satan works is through a flood of false teaching. It's not through silence, but it's through just showering us with all types of false doctrine and false teaching. It's why we need to know the Word of God. It's why the Apostle John says in 1 John, he says, Do not believe every spirit, little s, but test the spirits to see whether they are of God. How do we test the spirits, friends? The Word of God. I'm going to say that one more time. I don't want you to say with me the Word of God. How do we test the spirits, friends? The Word of God. we got to know the Word of God. The Word of God is the truth. It helps us, and it helps us distinguish between what is false and what is truth. Now, this man could not ask for help, but yet he had friends who asked for him. And I love this. Again, we have another account where this man has people who love him enough to bring him to Jesus. And that church, the application for us is, listen, there are some people who will never meet Jesus. Listen, God works through sovereign grace, absolutely, but he uses means as well. And there are some people that God has ordained that you introduce to Jesus. God uses means, not just miracles. Everything is a miracle, no doubt about it. But listen, be obedient to the good works that God has purposed for you. And most of that good work is introducing those that we know to Christ, our loved ones who are lost, the need, the needy, the helpless, to bring them to Christ. They are dead in their trespasses and sins. They are ignorant. They are wandering around in their lostness, in their muteness, in their blindness. They're not aware of their deepest problem. May the Lord help us to preach Christ to them. It falls to us, just like this man, these two blind men, go and bring him to Jesus. It falls to us to guide them. To line upon line, speak truth to them here, speak truth to them there. To bring them to Jesus, to preach Christ to them, to reason with them from the scriptures in humility. The most best basic level that we can all serve and bring our friends who are lost to Jesus, listen, is to intercede for them. There are people all of us know in our families, in our neighborhoods, that if we don't pray for them, no one else will. You can ask it like this, who am I praying for? Who am I regular interceding for? Here's another way you could put it. It's a hypothetical, no doubt. But if God answered the top five prayer requests on your prayer sheet, who would get saved? Who would get saved? 
Again, it's hypothetical. The point is this. Who are we interceding for? Who are we asking the Lord to save or to reclaim or to do the impossible? May the Lord stir up our hearts of faith to seek Him and to intercede for the lost. We see the casting out next here in verse 33. And when the demon was cast out... Now notice how Matthew is a minimalist. He does not give the details like Luke does. But when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke. And the multitudes marveled and said this, It has never been seen like this in all of Israel. We're going to unpack that just for a moment. But the most interesting thing here is that the fact that Matthew tells us that Jesus casts out the demon... And the man speaks. He doesn't tell us what the man says. And those of us who are very interested would say this. Whoa, 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 whoa. What happened? I think Matthew would tell us right away. What do you think happened? Text after text as I've been showing showing you and us the authority of Jesus. Jesus told the demon to leave. And guess what the demon did? He left. Just like he calmed the storm. And just like he raised the paralytic. And just like the woman was healed by the touch of the hem of his garment. And what we see here in this text is that Jesus does not address his physical problem at all. Jesus says nothing about his being mute. Jesus doesn't say anything. Many times he does. But what we see here is that Jesus goes not to the symptom, but Jesus goes to the heart of the problem. Jesus addresses this man's greatest need. And it was to be freed from this demon possession. This week I was reading in my devotions in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 21. Elisha has just received the mantle following the ministry of Elijah. And Elijah has been taken up to heaven to return back to God. And immediately, very, just right into Elisha's ministry, men come to him and they say, We have a wonderful city. It's positioned great. The problem that we have is, is that our water supply is tainted. What good is our city if we don't have fresh water? We're going to have to move. So please help, prophet. In 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 21, we see this illustrated, what Jesus does. We see also in the Old Testament. And Elisha says this, he said, bring me a new bowl, and he put salt in it. So they brought it to him, and then he went to the source of the water. And he cast the salt in there and said, thus says the Lord, I have sealed this water. From, it, from now on, it shall be no more death and barrenness. Going to the source. Here we see Jesus goes to the very heart and the source of the problem. Jesus has eyes of fire, and he sees what the common man there present that day cannot see. This text also shows us that Jesus has never met a force or power or demonic power that he cannot conquer by the word of his power. Praise Jesus. Praise the Lord. We notice here the lack of detail that Matthew chooses not to give. He just simply tells us the reality that this casting out happened. It was immediate. This man spoke immediately because the the, the demons were cast out and left immediately. One thing we notice about the miracles of Jesus, particularly here in this very brief and short text, is the apologetic nature that helps us. Unlike many modern miracles that are quote-unquote take place today, Jesus' were instantaneous. You could instantaneously see. You could immediately make a judgment, yay or nay, but you could not deny that it happened. In this particular account, there is no delay or time segment that must take place, Jesus is here to show his power and his authority. In verse 33, when the demon was cast out, the mute began to speak right away. And that leads us very quickly to verse 34, the conclusion, the conclusion about this miracle. 
And in each one of these, Matthew wants us to make a choice. Now, I don't want us to miss this. In our text here this morning, Matthew's conclusion regarding this particular miracle account includes this account, but also these three that he's just given to us, the whole section. Going back to the beginning, you could say, of Matthew chapter 9. Matthew is recording not only the response here of the crowds who are witnessing this immediate miracle, but they were also there in Matthew's house asking about fasting. They were also present when they saw the two blind men healed and Jairus' daughter raised, if you will, or outside the house and quickly seeing the results of it. This is the crowd who are walking around witnessing the ministry of Jesus, hearing him preach, witnessing his miracles. Some respond with praise. Others respond with criticism. Some respond with praise. Others respond with criticism. And there is a warning for us even in those who respond with wonder and praise. And it's also a reminder to us that every work of God will have both praise and criticism. You know, we're often, uh, we, we don't want criticism. We, we get burdened down by criticism. But yet we look at texts like this and we see that even Jesus received criticism. We're not Jesus, but even Jesus received criticism. The light that was shown, hearts were hardened. Now what we see, first of all, is the acclaim in this conclusion. Verse 33, verse 34. The multitudes, notice here this word, marveled, saying it was never seen like this in Israel. Now when we read this phrase, we have to ask the question, wait a second, there have been miracles like this. In Israel, if this has never been seen in Israel, then surely this has never been seen in the whole world. But what about the miracles in the Old Testament? I mentioned Elisha just a moment ago. The, the Old Testament is replete, beginning with Moses and on, of miracles that were performed. Unbelievable miracles. Notice how they respond. This word marveled means to admire. This is the positive response, to, to wonder. Uh, it means simply to stand from afar. One commentator puts and says this, to admire from a distance. It means to be wonder, filled with wonder and amazed. But notice here, but not changed. But not changed. Even in the positive response that we see here in the text, it is still damning. You can be amazed. Mind blown. That was lit. Fire. All the common responses we say today, the things that are just crazy. People stood there that day and they saw the miracle of Jesus and they were like, whoa, immediately started posting it in common vernacular in different ways and putting hashtags on it, sharing it with their friends. But here's the thing, they were not changed. And friends, week after week after week, what about us? We come before the presence of truth in our homes, in our God night time, we come before the light of scripture. And oftentimes, we are amazed, we are astounded, and we come before the presence of Jesus and see his mighty power and acts, and yet we're not changed. It's one thing to see, it's one thing to witness, it's one thing to observe, but it's another thing, listen, to obey, to obey. And without the Spirit-given fruit of obedience in our life, we're not changed. We are lost in our trespasses and sins, or we're disobedient children of God and disciples. Here in this text, the word that we see here is, is marvel. They stand from afar, and I secretly have a belief that everyone marveled, even those who came out with an outward negative response. I don't see how you could witness these miracles and not be like, okay, not again. Those whose hearts were hardened against Jesus, those who were against Jesus, 
I, I still imagine their hearts, is he about to do it? Is, oh my goodness, again. And then they straighten up again and fix their face and have a negative outward response. Notice also what they say. They say this was never done. It's never been seen like this in all of Israel. Now this is more true even than they realized. So we look throughout the Old Testament, as I mentioned just a moment ago, every one of God's men, his prophets, his mouthpieces, his voices, from the Old Testament all the way through John the Baptist, relied upon the power of God. They were not God. They called upon God. You think about Elijah on Mount Carmel calling upon God after the prophets of Baal for hours upon hours call out to God saying, Oh, Baal, hear us. Oh, Baal, hear us. Oh, Baal, hear us. And Baal does not hear them. And you think about Elijah. Elijah doesn't cause fire to rain down. Elijah doesn't have any power in and of himself. Elijah calls upon the Lord of Israel. The Lord calls upon the Lord of all the earth. Elijah needs God's power to perform the miracle. Friends, Jesus is God. Jesus calls upon no higher power for he is God. Here we see Jesus is able to perform the miracle. They marvel for this has never been seen in all of Israel. Christ is God in the flesh, 100% God, 100% man. Then we notice not only the acclaim, but the negative response, the accusation that is given in verse 34. But the Pharisees said, well, notice the dismissive tone here. He casts out devils through the prince of devils, verse 34. But the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. Now, we will not take the full time to unpack this text because in just coming up in Matthew chapter 12, this happens again. So I just want to direct your attention very quickly to Matthew chapter 12 and notice that this is something that they continue to continue to say. This is not a one-time event. This is not a slip of the tongue. This is actually their common vernacular. This is what they continue to say to everyone. Going over to Matthew chapter 12, You'll notice, and we'll read very quickly, it says in verse 22, Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute. This is a different man. And he healed him, so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Notice here, could this be? This is what the Son of David is supposed to do when he comes. He's supposed to open the eyes of the blind. He's supposed to perform miracles just like this. Could this be the son of David? Now, when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then he will plunder his house. Verse 30, he who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. He goes on 
in the verses 31 and preceding to describe what is known as the unpardonable sin. And friends, what we see here is this beginning process in the hearts of the scribes and the Pharisees of what is known as the unpardonable sin. We hear a lot about these things today. Let's just be clear. The unpardonable sin is attributing to Satan what is a clear work of God. Jesus is the son of David. Jesus, in this text, in these preceding texts, he comes and he is binding the strong man. Jesus is displaying his power and authority over the physical realm, over the natural realm, and over the spiritual realm. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Son of God. Friends, run to Christ this morning. Flee to Christ. Don't stand amazed. Don't stand in wonder. Don't sing about him without having bowed the knee to him. Rest in him. Run to him. Place your faith in him. And rest and trust that he is who he says he is. And that his word is what it says it is. And it will do what he says he will do. Do not just stand around and be marveled. Do not stand around and simply be amazed. But trust in Christ, in Christ alone. One of my favorite songs is a song that is, has a catechism at its heart. You may be familiar with it. Is anyone worthy? Is he worthy? That's the name of the song, and that's the question is, is anyone worthy? The song asks a question, and it responds with an answer. I want to close with this as we consider the wonderful works of Jesus. Do you feel the world is broken? We do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? Consider our man here in the text this morning. We do. Do you wish that you could see it all made new? We do. In the heart of all of us, whether saved or unsaved or unregenerate, there's a longing for justice. There's a longing for peace. There's a longing for reconciliation. There's a longing that things just be like they're supposed to be. And friends, in this life, it will not be that way. We are to pursue it. We're to try to bring it about. But listen, when you look to Jesus, the Lion of Judah, who conquered the grave, you will find that. And I pray that you will look to him today and live. Let's pray together. Father, in this text, and in our world all around us, we do feel the shadows deepen. We do feel there's a sense of darkness that will not stop, but yet we have this living hope that nothing can stop the light of Christ. Nothing can stop your kingdom. You are the Lion of Judah who conquered the grave and rose three days later with victory over death, hell, and the grave. You are from David's root. You are the Lamb who died to ransom us. You are our King. Father, we exalt in you. And as we come to this text this morning, we feel our faith strengthened. You are who you say you are. This is the same Jesus who went to the cross, who lived the perfect life for us, who died the death that is ours to die. And Father, who rose three days later. This is Christ. This is he who has all power and all authority, as he says in Matthew chapter 28. Father, we look to you. You are our only hope. You are our only plea. We pray that you would save the lost here this morning, that you'd strengthen the faith of those who are struggling, that they would get their eyes off of their problems and the very real struggles that they're having in their lives, and they would be strengthened in Christ. 
and rest in this glorious hope. It's in the precious name we pray.